We hear and read the term cultural Marxism and decide it sounds bad. But what is it really? How did it start? And why did it start? And what is the goal? My guest today explains the start with the Frankfurt School, and don't worry, that will be explained, and also shows what may be the inevitable fate of planned compliance to a thought process. But you're getting ahead of me and answering, that wasn't real cultural Marxism. You're on the right path. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 101. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello, folks. Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. My cookbook, Cooking for Comfort, is out and is a great way to learn how to build deeper layers of flavor. The book is a lot of soups, which is perfect for the upcoming fall season, but it's also perfect because that's a way to really get flavor into food. Find it on Amazon or click the link on the support page, culinarylibertarian.com slash support. My guest today is Michael Rechtenwald, former professor of liberal studies and global liberal studies at NYU from 2008 to 2019. Michael's writings have appeared in a variety of journals, and he also writes for RT, American Conservative, The Washington Post, and more. Michael's webpage reads that he is a pundit and champion of free speech and opposes all forms of authoritarianism and totalitarianism, including socialism slash communism, social justice, fascism, and PC. Michael, thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. My pleasure to be here, Dan. I, I love the name of the show. I'm a, I'm a culinary libertarian myself, although I don't cook. Well, that's okay. You can be in culinary eating libertarian. And we're just I'm, a, I'm an eating libertarian. I eat whatever I like. That's basically what it comes down to. Uh, I like that kind of person. Cool. All right. I've just given the folks a bit of a rundown of your career as a professor, but I'm sort of interested in the change from leftist to libertarian. I find that kind of impressive. Can you give the sort of short version of how you got here? Yeah, well, I'll just tell you, I mean, I was a communist, uh, left communist. So there's this camp within Marxism, which considers itself left or libertarian communist. And the idea there was uh, basically the, the left uh, communist contingent broke with the Bolsheviks really soon after the uh, revolution, for example, in, in uh, Russia, and uh, opposed the Bolsheviks' uh, very authoritarian moves in, in which they took, over the, um, uh, they took over the government basically without even any votes in, you know, to, to approve their um, uh, discharging uh, of themselves as the uh, de facto leaders of the nation. And uh, so I, I, I believe that uh, I used to believe that socialism was possible, but not it wouldn't have to be uh, some sort of a uh, tyranny, some sort of a uh, totalitarianism. And uh, the, even as a communist, I, I thought that the, that the Soviet Union was totalitarian uh, and that in China, for example, was also. And so um, I, I wrote uh, a lot of essays from a libertarian or left communist standpoint, and, you know, they were published and stuff. And uh, I, um, so I wasn't really part of the uh, contemporary communist left, if you will. It was mostly outside of that, but, and, and I retained a critical perspective all the time. And I was quite independent even then. Uh, so I was kind of, I would say that I was actually rather... Uh, you know, fiercely independent, right? And uh, so, but um, when, uh, whenever the left, and I mean all of the left, turned against me at once, including the libertarian communists, uh, I realized that, you know, 
these people are totalitarian at base because they, they did some unbelievable things. Uh, for example, I was a member of this group called Insurgent Notes, and they're, they're a left uh, communist group. And uh, after I appeared on Fox News talking about what happened at NYU, and I don't want to have to go into that. That story is all over the place. Um, when, I, when I went on uh, Fox News and talked about that, they, they denounced me and they held a shadow trial on, uh, on, on, online. And they levied these charges against me, and then they wanted to vote on whether I should be uh, disbanded, you know, thrown out of the group. And I said, don't bother, I quit. And um, I said, you have no moral authority over me, or any, any authority for that matter. I'm, I'm gone. And that was one of the steps. And, the, you know, the, 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 the attacks were so vicious. And, and then they took the side of NYU, the institution, you know, the behemoth uh, over me. Uh, basically, you know, see, it showed me that they, they really don't care about authority. They, they have no problem with authority uh, when, it's, when it's in their favor or when it's uh, opposing somebody they don't, whose, whose views they don't like. And, and all I had done is criticized the way the social justice ideology had uh, overtaken the entire university system and, and was running rampant and uh, that uh, I, I disdained it. And I, I criticized the uh, bias hotlines and uh, the uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings and all these things, which I thought were just really creepy. And uh, especially the bias hotline, it was really creepy and, and authoritarian. And it, it, it reminded me of a kind of soft Stasi state within the university. And... Um, you know, it was really that. That was what made me see the totalitarian aspect, and so politically. Then I went into reading uh, a great deal about Marxism from a from the libertarian standpoint. I started reading Mises and others in the Austrian camp and other and other books. And uh, the, the Mises criticism, uh, especially the calculation problem and other writings in his uh, book. Um, Several of his books. Um, I won't point to any one in particular, I guess. But there's one that's a, a compendium of, of devastating blows to the economics of socialism, uh, and um, it just it just uh, completely it totally it totally revamped my thinking. And I, I, I saw that it, uh, Marxism was idiotic, uh, actually, from an economic standpoint, and then tyrannical from a, from a political standpoint. So I, I guess, but I should also add that I had a kind of gestalt shift uh, that came vis-a-vis -vis my own son's cancer. He was diagnosed with stage four cancer on my birthday. And um, I was kind of, a, I had a kind of Damascus moment. I, I won't get into that much in case your listeners don't care about my religiosity. But, uh, you know, I had a really a Christian uh conversion. So those, those combined uh, totally reoriented my worldview. And um, I, I just became, you know, the uh, libertarian, uh, Christian, um, um, I'd say rather, uh, almost, I have her between a, a minarchist and a paleo libertarian. So um, all that just, it just made perfect sense and everything just clicked into place. I continued the reading and, uh, and then continued my own criticisms of Marxism uh, and uh, actually existing socialism and idealistic or utopianism, which they disclaim, but uh, all that. So that's basically the short narrative of it. That is some journey. That's, and I think I knew part of that and I'm still... <laughs> Finding myself really impressed by it. Oh, thank you. It's, it's it's the the will to take on your own thinking is is a pretty big chore for anybody. Yeah, and if I can do it, anybody can. So I I hold hope out hope for those lost and leftist land uh, that they can come around if they're honest enough with themselves. Um, but it might take a trauma. I, I think. It's not necessarily a revolution in thinking that comes first. I think trauma is actually the way that it happens. Um, like you, you experience a trauma. For me, it was the trauma of these 
attacks of, by people that I actually thought were my friends. And uh, then they're, you know, they're banishing me and shunning me and ridiculing me and stuff. And they thought that I had fallen from a great height, you know, as a socialist to now this deplorable. And um, I thought that it was quite the opposite. And then I was accused of uh, doing it opportunistically, that I was just switching sides because Trump had become president and that I was trying to cash in and all this. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. I lost an, I mean, I gave up an academic job that became intolerable. Um, so I, I actually experienced financial uh, a downturn that I've only been trying to compensate for through my own work, constantly working, you know. Well, you are constantly working. It's like you put out a book every other week. <laughs> Not quite, but I have two this year. Uh, there'll be two this year and altogether four in the last two years. So That's a lot of writing, man. Yeah. Well, in addition to books, you are working on a course for the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. Now, right. we've spoken about Liberty Classroom on this show. What is the name of the course and what are the key points you're going to discuss? It's called Critical Theory, Cultural Studies, and Postmodernism, uh, viewed from the standpoint of, liber uh, uh, of liberty. So it's, uh, um, I'm taking on three major schools of thought at once, and they're enormous in themselves, but I put them under one rubric in order to examine the roots of so-called cultural Marxism, which the left thinks is a conspiracy theory, but which is actually well documented as a, an approach and an attempt on the left side on their own part. It's, it's, it's all clear as day that this is really what they set out to do. And it started with Antonio Gramsci in uh, Italy and his prison notebooks in which he outlined the new approach to a revolution, which would be a cultural revolution rather than a political and economic one first. So they, they realized that unless they thought that unless they attacked and and subverted the cultural uh, and uh, educational institutions and then changed the ideology of people, that they could not undertake a socialist revolution, that it was necessary to combat capitalist ideological hegemony with socialist ideological hegemony. So the course is uh, tracing all that to three schools of thought. Postmodernism, which is the most nebulous and difficult uh, to get your head around because there are different schools of it, there's different sub-schools of it. And it's really, it wasn't based, they never named themselves a single movement. It's just that it's been grouped as such since. And it makes sense. Um, cultural studies, which is a discipline, that, it's a field of studies, I should say, that came out of uh, England first, out of Birmingham. And they were looking to, um, as the same thing to, to address culture in order to change thoughts, you know, and then the Frankfurt School, which is typically associated with cultural Marxism. They were German um, intellectuals, mostly German Jewish intellectuals who immigrated to the United States in, in 1933, fleeing Nazi Germany and came here, set up shop in uh, Columbia first and then at Berkeley. And they basically uh, infiltrated the university system and they successfully began the long march uh, through the institutions that Gromsky had, uh, that Gromsky had um, you know, advocated and, and planned. Uh, so that, that's basically the, the course in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot of detail inside of there. there yes, yes, there is. Um, so as I was doing some reading on this, one of the things, and we don't have this might actually end up being the course, but between cultural studies, uh, cultural Marxism, which we could call right now uh, postmodernism, and the Frankfurt School, it looks like there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, there's overlap for sure. There's there's overlap, but like there's also a lot of disagreement within there, and then there would pe there would be people that would say. Postmodernism doesn't belong in there because they disavowed Marxism and so on. Yeah, that's true, but they didn't totally. I mean, all all they did is denounce the idea of uh, of master narratives and 
this idea of the social totality, which they thought couldn't be grasped, and there was no coherent narrative that could be attached to its movements and changes, because it wasn't even a, a, it wasn't even an ontological category that could be understood. So, but they had a anti. They were all anti-capitalists. They were all leftists, and and even. Um, uh, Derrida, the founder of uh, Deconstruction, said that underneath all his ambitions was Marxist ideas, Marxism. That basically Marxism was what drove him. Uh, and it, well, not in a way from Marxism, but it, it's what drove his whole project of deconstruction. So um, there's overlap, but there's plenty of disagreement. Um, and it, it's curious, uh, you know, you see the same sort of things within the right. Uh, which we would consider basically internecine warfare, but you know, nevertheless, the project is pretty much a singular project. Well, as disagreement goes, <laughs> libertarians know very well <laughs> about disagreement on principles. Yes, that's, right. that's that's not exclusive to anybody. Nobody owns that. That's right. Paul Gottfried wrote in his article, "The Frankfurt School and Cultural Marxism." Yeah. Quote: I'd have to question whether the present war on Christian bourgeois institutions can be traced back in any meaningful way to traditional Marxism, end quote. Well, Is that's he- correct. But that's correct. But that's, that's, there's a distinction. There, there's, it shouldn't be called, it isn't traced back to, to traditional or orthodox Marxism. That's correct. But that doesn't mean it's not traced back to Marxism, broadly speaking, and it is. It's neo-Marxism and the Frankfurt School or neo-Marxists for various reasons. They don't subscribe to Orthodox or what he called, what, traditional Marxism? Yeah, yes. they're, they're not traditional Marxists, but they're Marxists nonetheless. Um, so that's correct, but wrong in its import. I think that there's, and I'm going to bring this up in a minute, but there, there, ter- becomes, there becomes a level of confusion when terms are... I'm going to say misused, and I'm not saying they're doing this on purpose, but they could be. Yeah. But there's, it seems that this cultural Marxism, which is not the traditional Marxism, seems to look a lot like Woodrow Wilson's progressivism, especially when you start looking at them preferring the elite to lead all of you peons who don't know what's good for you. There's, there is that, there's a resemblance, but they would never admit to it, okay? They they would never admit that they were elites attempting to lead anything because um, that would be anti egalitarian at base and they're not they 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 pretend to be egalitarian so even while they're this is this is a common thing within Marxism okay Marxists are not supposed to be individualists yet everybody's trying to publish books under their own name and to get a name for themselves. Marxists are not supposed to be elitists, yet they are attempting, to, but there is a cadre who attempts to lead almost every time, either intellectually or actually politically, as in the case of Lenin and, and uh, so forth. So you have uh, this, this kind of this, this contradiction. It's a s- enormous contradictions, obviously, on the left, and this is one of them, you know, that you have people that would, dis- would, would disavow their own ambitions while they're undertaking it. I mean, this is very common. Well, so the name that I ran across as the person sort of really... I read that article you mentioned, by the way, the Godfrey oh, article. okay, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there's probably been more than a few, but one guy, Mark, I'm going to say his name wrong, Marcuse, Marcuse. was Herbert Marcuse. in favor of these intellectual elites as leaders. And so it seems even there... We have a person espousing one thing contradictory to his own ideology. That, I mean, maybe that's just politics and normal, but that sounds kind of odd. Uh, it's not just politics as normal. Okay, so because the, the, there's a problem in that they disavow all their will to power. I mean, they claim it's always for egalitarian purposes, but you have Marcuse, who was a Frankfurt School theorist, a German philosopher, trained in the highest echelons of German uh, ed- German educational system, uh, studied under, uh, you know, super leading lights, you know, uh, world-leading philosophers and so forth, comes over to the United States and starts writing and telling us what to do. 
Uh, I'm, it's basically that simple. And and uh, he's he comes from uh, Nazism and sees Nazism everywhere in the United States, you know, and levies these fierce criticisms against the U.S. culture, society, business, everything, withering criticism, but never turns his never really says much about communism and what's happening in the Soviet Union, except in passing that, oh, we acknowledge that it's not going well over there uh, because the, the Soviets, uh, and when Khrushchev came to power, the, 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 the secret speech, which was not so secret after all, because it got everywhere, the secret, nothing, nothing lends itself to uh, circulation more than calling something secret. Uh, it was, it was, a. Uh, it wasn't so secret in, in the, the, it was a denunciation of the purges and the terror, the great, the red terror and the great terror, uh, not so much the red terror, because that was Lenin's baby, the great terror under Stalin and, uh, and everything else came to light and was denounced publicly by the state itself. Um, but this hardly got their worth, was worth their notice. Instead, they criticized the West for being consumer, because, uh, one of the things, and I don't want to give away the course, but they considered they they considered the success of capitalism to be a disaster for them. Uh, that was one of the main things. That's it's... and yeah, they were definitely elitists in the sense that they had elite backgrounds, came over here with very high arid, you know, totally erudite, philosophically informed people who then came to the United States and told us what kind of a slobs we were, in effect. Now, one of the things I thought was a very interesting observation, and I'm not sure what to make of it, perhaps nothing, but the observation is that Marcuse was, at least in the timeline, a contemporary of Hayek and Mises. So how yeah. these two polar opposite people from relatively similar backgrounds end up having yeah. this just divergent approach it's just this and never would read each other in a million well Mises would read the socialist because he was very 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 up to speed on every I mean I think he looked at almost every branch of socialism and the writers therein but Marcusa would never read Mises he wouldn't even bother looking at it in fact he would try to ignore it on purpose if he heard about it that's in it's it's interesting but probably expected Marxists don't read outside of Marxism, okay? I can tell you that because I was one of them. You know, people are like, how did you not know this? <laughs> you know, did you not read the Black Book of Communism? Hadn't you read Mises? No. They keep you busy with reading the canon of Marxist literature so that you don't have time or the wherewithal to, uh, to look at criticisms of Marxism. And you just, what they have is they have catchphrases to, to dismiss everything that they don't want to deal with. So, oh, that Mises' uh, treatment of the calculation, oh, that was the calculation problem? That, that, was, that, was dis, uh, that was dismantled. And they never tell you by who, where, what, how, nothing. Because it didn't happen. Uh, you know, uh, they, and then, then any criticisms of Soviet communism, for the most part, are considered bourgeois ideology, quote-unquote. That gets rid of that. And so it's propaganda instead of history. So the Black Book of Communism is, oh, they have catchphrases for all these things. They just, oh, the Black Book of Communism, that was discredited. No, it wasn't. It, some people wrote criticisms of it. So what? It, didn't, it wasn't discredited. And I read 35 reviews of the book in top academic journals, and none of them can dispute the numbers. The numbers are, are solid. Uh, everything that happened terms of uh, imprisonments, murders, famines, um, other state crimes, state crimes. Oh, that's what's the difference between putting people in a gulag in our prison system in the United States? Well, the people in a prison in the United States have been convicted of a crime. Wrongly or rightly, they've been convicted of an actual crime. Not so in the gulag. Not so at all. And also they can't deal with the fact that the gulag was a slave system, a system of slavery. Oh, well, we make license plates in prisons in the United States and they don't get paid. Well, it's a little different from being a political criminal to being a social criminal, if you will. There's a huge gap there, but they can't acknowledge, oh, it's the same thing and it's worse here. You know, so 
Um, you know, these are just the things you have to live with knowing what you're dealing with, which is a, uh, a, a, a an, you know, an obscenely um, obstinate uh, and utterly blindfolded uh, contingent who consider themselves to be the most, the smartest people on earth. And they just, you know, they, they look down, they look down on you if you're not a Marxist, like they think you're an idiot, that you have to be an idiot. Uh, Lewis Project or Proyek or whatever the hell his name is, has a website in which uh, somebody started bashing me. And then I, I saw it because I, I check out my Google mentions. Okay, I'll be honest. And I went to the page. I saw it, and they were. I get. I engaged them there. First of all, they always tell my story wrongly. They always say that I'm. I cashed in and made all this money, and it was all very lucrative for me. Uh, and I challenged that, and then I challenged uh, the guy to a debate about Marxism, and they just started. Uh, Lewis Proyek, he said. Uh, you're, I, I t you're a joke. And I said, well, debate me. Let's see who, who's the, who's really the joke here. I challenged him to debate and they blocked me instantly. So this is just what you have to live with. Well, you know, I think that there's a way and, and your observations seem right. And so most of us on social media will run against somebody who has as responses, uh, Assumptions or assertions with no support whatsoever, and the most probably the most right. Well, there's a lot of popular ones, but perhaps one of the ones going on right now is uh, that Obama would have handled COVID better than Trump. How? Prove it. Okay. I mean, but but you ask right. for that, and it's you get well. Then you get then you get well. You're just a racist, or you're just you. It's a non-demonstrable non assertion because they didn't have the same. It never happened under Obama, although there was uh, the other one. SARS. Uh, what was it? Uh, SARS. So, well, this is SARS too. SARS one, uh, and you know nothing was made of it. You know, so it's them that are shutting down American cities and making it into a disaster. Then they're blaming Trump for it. So, you know, everything they say you're doing, you know, they're doing. So. Um, we, we know that. That's their game. True enough. All right, I'm going to get into the universities and media a little bit. Before I do that, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. Folks, do you look at the spice shelf in the grocery store and wonder just how long has that stuff been collecting dust? Old herbs and spices lose their potency as they sit in clear jars under bright lights. It doesn't take a miracle to get max flavor in your food. It takes better spices. Savory Spice, my favorite online spice company, is the place to shop to stock up on herbs and spices for fall cooking and baking. Of course, you'll want lots of pumpkin spice mix, but also think about Mount Hood Toasted Onion Rub for extra pizzazz in your onion chip dip. That's my trick. Enter my affiliate link, colonialibertarian.com slash savory spice into your browser to shop their site and order today. For you cooks short on time, check out the flavor bundles, which also includes an orange chocolate mug cake. You can have dessert ready in less than five minutes, and it's vegetarian and gluten-free and single-serving. Flavor is the name of the game in food, and you can get more flavor from Savory Spice. Click the banner on the show notes page and earn $10 back in Savory Spice cash with every $100 you spend. Check out the recipe selections such as toasted onion pizza dough or soba noodle salad. Check out culinarylibertarian.com slash savory spice for dips and dressing ideas, American pantry products, Barbecue rubs and more. Colonialibertarian.com slash savory spice. Now let's get back to the show. If you mention to somebody that the universities and the media are aligned to an end of dismantling culture, people will look at you like you have three eyes. 
Well, what a fine job they've done to set a goal yeah. and make anyone who's, who can see it appear to be a loon. That's pretty impressive. How, so first, is this actually going on? And I think that's sort of <laughs> rhetorical, but let's get a clarification. Yeah. And how do we battle that? Well, there, there is not to destroy all culture, but they're, they're out to just, there are to dismantle, um, capitalist Western ideals and civilization um, uh, and to attack it relentlessly in every, every social science and humanities discipline. And uh, to uh, it's an all-out assault on the value system of the West. And the West is treated like it's a, you know, the, the West is the, the most criminal development in history. You know, of course, this is a cartoon version of history. Um, you know, the only imperialist, colonialist, and slaveholders have been Westerners in their minds. So this denies, you know, huge swaths of history and tons of evidence to the contrary. And, and it also fails to acknowledge that the West is the, the only culture that actually legally banned slavery or the first to do so. So, um, you know, there's just so many things. Um, the way to attack it is, well, I, I guess what I'm trying to do, which is in a... The thing is, despite being banished from the academy, and I can't possibly get, I would never get hired anywhere, um, they're reading my work all over the place. All, all these academics who claim to hate me, they're reading it. So I think that, you know, it's a long, it's a long battle and it's, it's a long, it's a war. And it's going to take, it took them 50 years to do this uh, long march through the institutions, if not longer, 60 maybe. It's going to take equally long to turn it back, if not uh, utterly change courses in terms of establishing counter institutions parallel to theirs that just basically, uh, you know, where we try to woo people away from them and, and just create parallel institutions that ignore them and that set up, uh, you know, the values of free speech, liberty, and, uh, you know, they wouldn't be excluded from our universities. They just wouldn't be in the official doctrinaires of it, you know, the official doctrine makers in it, that there would be uh, different principles that would be established and that would allow for free speech, debate, intellectual, open intellectual inquiry, and the reporting on, those in, on that inquiry. Because, like, for example, Stanley Fish, who wrote this book called The First, and the subtitle is ridiculous. Um, I, I critiqued his book because he's basically saying in the book that there's no, there's no such value as free speech in the academy, and it shouldn't be a value. It should not be allowed. It's not, what, it's not how the university systems are supposed to work. They're supposed to work on the basis of not of democracy, but of um, vetted expert opinion. Okay, so... The problem with that is that the, the vetted expert opinion and the opinions that are ex, you know, considered expert and those that are got that get through are necessarily leftist, uh, especially you know in the social sciences and humanities. There's no way you can even survive in the academy in enough, from another standpoint unless you hide. Um, and I know a few hiders, and I don't blame them for hiding because they they want to make a living. But I know a guy that was an alt-right guy in my own department. He admitted to me under the table. I mean, I'm not alt-right, but I, I, I nevertheless would not dismiss somebody on that basis. They'd have to argue their points. I think alt-right is absurd because you can't turn back a multicultural society and turn it into some sort of white bread loaf, um, you know, uh, white national ethno ethno nationalism. I think. It's absurdly, it's impossible. It's also, you know, but nevertheless, I didn't dismiss the guy on the basis of his views. Um, and he was the only ally I had in the whole whole department. And that speaks volumes. So it's a long, it's a long process that will have to take place. And that's probably not going to happen in our lifetimes. I'm being honest about the assessment. I know it's somewhat might sound pessimistic and dispiriting to some people, but I can't lie. I can't say, oh, yeah, all you have to do is, you know, and lead this false charge into nothing, you know. 
not going to lead a bunch of lemmings over a cliff. Right. I mean, that's great. No, well, I, then I don't think anyone is asking you to do that. Good. Um, <laughs> you know, and not to get too much off on the tangent, but um, a couple of years ago, uh, well, he's he seems to have some some insight on these things. Glenn Beck made the observation that in general, for the last hundred years or so, the left has been fundamentally more organized and more focused on a goal. And the yeah. right has simply been reacting next week to what happened last week. And that's correct. It's just, and it's so. Well, there's a reason for that. Can I give you the reason? Yes, please. Absolutely. They're, they're collectivists. So they're, they're, they're already, they're already, their whole orientation is to organize because they don't believe in the individual anyway. So they're going to organize better because they're collectivists. And, and I wonder whether the goal isn't really the outs, you know, the goal isn't really the, the goals they have in mind, but whether, whether collectivism itself is the goal. That is to say, the left claims to organize in order to meet an end. Like they want to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, you know, climate change, economy, you know, uh, socialism, whatever. But I wonder if the goal isn't really just to be in a collective. Um, in, in fact, that the goal of leftism isn't so much the, 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 what we've called the means may actually be the ends. Now, that is a fascinating idea. Now, some people won't get what I'm saying because they won't see the, 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 the point because they won't know the problem. The problem is... We're trying to figure out what these people are about. The, the, they have to know the official narrative about what they're about and understand it in order to see why this is a, actually a quite a, what I'm saying is quite, well, it's kind of revolutionary <laughs> because, and I'm not handing myself a pat on the back, but I'm just noting based on what I know about the left and what they say about themselves, that this is a, this would be quite a, if this is the case, it would be quite an observation because they claim to be organizing not to be organized, but rather to get something done. Whereas I'm saying that they're actually organizing in order to be a collective. It's brilliantly simple. Yeah. Well, and that, well, thanks for that. But I didn't mean to say yeah to the brilliant part. I just said it's no, simple. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. I've wondered, and it's, because it, it has lots of people. It's been going on for a long time, so it seems like it should be this massive thing. And since incentive matters, I wonder what the heck is their incentive. But maybe it's just, maybe it's already been achieved. And maybe now it's just tweaking at the edges. Who knows? Yeah, I think it's been largely achieved. Um, they are dominating the culture. They're dominating the culture industries. As, uh, which is what uh, Max uh, Adorno and Horkheimer called the media, the culture industry. They're dominating the academy. They're now deeply embedded in corporate America. Um, the, the leftist ideology has penetrated to the heart of corporate America, so they're in there. They're in all the public institutions. They're even in, in penetrating the CIA and the FBI, or the intelligence agencies. Um, so it's incredible how far they've gone. I didn't read it, but I saw today you had posted or reposted an op-ed you'd written about the corporate. I'm gonna I'm gonna use the phrase maybe you didn't corporatization of America. I call it corporate socialism is what I'm is what it's a uh, what the, the title is, and that's yeah. It just went up on glenbeck.com today. It's gotten a lot of play. Uh, yeah, what uh, you want to know what the argument there is, or yeah, tell me the argument. But I'm also going to put a link to that on today's show notes page, which will be culinarylibertarian.com slash one hundred and one. Okay, cool. Yeah, tell me, um, tell me the argument of the uh, of the article. Well, people have wondered, and it was a conundrum to me: why are these capitalist corporations supporting socialist groups? And so they. The explanations have been have gone well. They're just placating them in order to, you know, uh, a, you know, uh, retain their customer base. B, you know, um, placate the liberal elite that have these agendas, and so therefore be spared from higher taxes or antitrust 
legislation or, or, or charges. Uh, and, you know, C, basically to keep from being canceled by, by woke culture. Well, I said, what if they're actually support, what if they're actually expressing their own real interests in this woke capitalism ideology? What if these are their actual interests? And then I investigated, I thought, what about the possibility that they do want some form of socialism, but not state socialism? They want something else. What would that be? Well, I've done a bit of reading of Anthony Sutton's work, and he's got a trilogy on all this. Uh, it's brilliant, uh, though he was also kind of, uh, you know, treated like a pariah, even by, I think it was the uh, Hoover Institute. Um, he, he worked there for quite a while. He did a lot of investigations into corporate socialism. Corporate socialism is basically corporate monopolies on top and... Um, so-called actually existing socialism on the ground. He didn't call it that. That's my addition. Actually existing socialism is a phrase that's used pejoratively to refer to what socialism is really like. So I'm saying this is actually existing socialism because it's the actual socialism that it'll be, that is, rather than the one that it's ideal or utopian or at least Marxist in its truest sense. And that is to have basically corporate monopolies on the top and effectively a kind of two-tiered system where on, there's corporate monopolies on the top and then, and then this other tier of effective, you know, serfs in, in, at, at the bottom, a kind of a neo-feudalism in which there's a corporate oligarchy that, that is monopolistic or tending towards monopoly. And then, the, just, then basically gutting all basically uh, markets, mar the free market in effect, getting rid of the free market and competition. And then, you know, Sutton talked about this. This was the aims directly of these mega uh, bankers and corporate elite in, from, the late uh, from the late 19th century on. Um, and I wrote, I wrote about this. Um, King Camp Gillette is probably the best expounder of the philosophy in his books, The Human Drift and uh, World Corporation, in which he talked about corporations being a singular corporation was the object. A singular corporation in charge of all production and of distribution of every existing item in the whole world, which would eliminate competition, which was deemed to be this dreadful, horrible thing, and effect, you know, which means the effective demolishing of the free market. The free market as vilified, the free market is is and, and competition are deemed the most evil, pernicious. Uh, you know, elements in the world. Well, you look at Marx, he said the same thing about the free market, and so did Marcuse, and so did Frank, uh, so did Adorno. The free market has been condemned. So there is, there is a very serious resemblance between this, this idea and state socialism. State socialism is nothing if not, not a monopoly. It's a monopoly over everything. Well, corporate, corporations would monopolize the economy and work to monopolize the other elements of culture including industry, including education, including the culture, etc. So the only difference between that and state socialism is who's running it. You know, uh, the identity of the characters involved in running it are different, but it's still socialism. It's just a corporate socialism. Well, that brings me back to the founders and the battle between a central bank and not a central bank. And it seems like we go right back to 1913 and we got our problems starting all over again. Yes, that's right. That's been the objective of the Fed. And um, it's a privatized monopoly over what? Over money. And uh, there you have it. That's the beginning of it right there. Um, so when monopolizing everything, now these corporate monopolies would not be singular as in world corporation. But they would be singular in terms of their own industries, in effect, or they tend towards the singular monopolization of their own industries. And this is what they want. Amazon with all retail, uh, Facebook with social media, Facebook, Twitter, you know, they have a sort of division of labor between them. One takes the small blogging and the other takes the big blogging or bigger blogging, you know, Facebook versus Twitter. Um, and uh, they all have leftist authoritarian ideology running right through them. I mean, this is clear as day. Um, so uh, they 
espouse leftism because it works for them, not because they're kissing ass. It's actually in their interest to do so. That's my argument. It's and t- this isn't my phrase. Tom Woods has called them the Borg, but it seems like it is the discrimination of the Borg into their own, in- into their best skills. So we have, you know, the beverage makers and the shoemakers and the retailers and the it's fascinating idea. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't see, I get pushback from two camps on this. Of course, the socialists, the hard die in the wool socialists, when I tell them that they're being used as dupes to spread ideology on the ground while not paying attention and looking for economic equality amongst their peers and themselves, but never even, and, and at the same time, abetting straight up, abetting and, and, and actually uh, arguing for corporate dominance, major super corporate dominance and, and, just, and just totally dissing uh, small business. In fact, there was an article on the Jacobin to the same effect recently said, uh, I think the title was uh, why supporting small businesses is a bad idea or something like that. Or that's a line from the article, basically arguing for corporate monopolies because they pay better. Um, so um, the, the, the left is supporting monopolies and they see, see the reason why it works for them, socialists, like real true believers is because they as much as long as as soon as they can consolidate capital as much as possible they think its overthrow is easier so if you have less to deal with less if you get consolidation first then it's just a matter of taking out those few things over and there's less of them to worry about you know so the petty bourgeois they would call it have to go first that's where the the first gutting has to take place then they'll take on the mammoths later, they say. But the mammoths are like, yeah, yeah, right. You'll get us all right. No, no worries. And they, they, they're fine with this shit. They love it. No, there's an interesting irony that by omitting better history lessons in universities and high schools, the failings of Marxists and you mentioned the Jacobins could be easier spotted. So the lack of teaching in universities seems to be bringing their own demise. And my support on that idea is the Puritans, by the third generation, didn't have any inertia to keep their mission going. Mm. Is there any chance here that this... Yeah, they could shoot themselves in the foot. They, it, could, it, will, it will self-destruct at some point, but the, the, the problem is they don't care because, you know... Even even classical economics says, you know, you, you know, a future a future cost is is less pertinent than a, a an approximate one. So they don't care about the long term. So you're talking uh, time preference. That's right. It's a it's a time preference. It's like you don't count the cal- you don't calculate into these matters long term uh, exigencies and costs and and, uh, you know, even insurance companies look at it this way. So, if, uh, so it's, it's an endless high time preference all the company. time. Low time preference right. doesn't exist. That's right. So they're willing to take the chance of long-term dissolution of the whole thing for the short-term benefits of it, which are enormous. For fiat. <laughs> yeah. Because there is no money. Interesting. Huh. All right, I want to talk a little bit more after we take a break to hear from the folks at Pasting Anarchy. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. From the articles I was reading, I think it's right to say that cultural Marxism means to do away with Christianity. That's right. When we see governors restricting church worship but allowing, quote-unquote, peaceful protests, they don't even seem to be hiding it anymore. Mm-mm. From a libertarian position, you know, voting differently seems laughable, but what's the relief? Is decentralization a way to relief 
And how do we get there without voting? Decentralization of what? The state or the government? Yes. Well, both. Either, either the well, government Well, I mean, I think that's what it's going to come to because the federation or the federal view, luckily we have a federal view in the U.S. that's such that the states can have some semi-autonomy because this is what's going to save certain people, if anything, uh, for the present moment, because federalism, uh, despite its unitary um, uh, overall uh, structure, will allow for possibilities of people seceding effectively from the federation and moving into states that will be more uh, amenable to their values, right? So... Um, thank goodness there are certain states left that maybe haven't gone over the edge yet. Uh, I think it was South Dakota, which be, is one of them. And I, I'm looking towards Wyoming and places like that uh, where I can be left alone. Well, Oregon is not that state. No, I know that. No, that's not the place to go for me. <laughs> well, I'm, I could, anyway, so. You can tell me about that, I'm sure. Well, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Nothing I can do about that. I'm here, so. Yeah, and this is where this is where our fiat come from. So we got to be here. Well, I, I believe in staying and fighting and lo- wherever you are. That's basically been my view. Um, although I didn't do it at NYU, I, because it was just ridiculous. Um, they put me in a gulag. Really, they totally isolated me and vilified me and turned me into a universally abhorred pariah. Structurally, they did it. They did it structurally by moving my office to the Russian department and putting me in a room with metal shelves and they wouldn't move my books. And there were like 4,000 books. I couldn't possibly do it. It was two miles away, basically. It's the way the campus is. So, I mean, yeah, there, but I believe in staying and fighting where you are for the most part, although I think that secessions of various types, de facto secessions are going to be really, really the, the way things go in the near future. All right, so staying where you are, defending your land, defending your your spot, your house, your town, your community, and secession, there's a lot of gap there. There's a gap. There's going to be some fighters that will stick it out where they are, and others will just say, I can't take it anymore. And I don't blame them. I mean, I'm not saying that I would say try to stay in where, where you are and fight, but if it becomes a losing battle, acknowledge it. I mean, we can't be anti-realist here you know no but so my question is what does in what forms do you see fighting being and that's that that's an incendiary word what do you how, how do those who wish to well, well i mean defense yes, it's self-defense yes. no, I, I don't mean you know i i, I hold to the uh non-aggression principle but how do they push back how does how does the one who can and wishes to push back against this Postmodernism, cultural Marxism, whatever you want to call it, how do you do that? Well, you have to do it intellectually because this is where it's this is where it started. Okay, so I, you know, I, I believe in the war of ideas. You have to keep fighting in the war in the battlefield of ideas. Of course, we've been banished from a lot of those centers of ideas. So the institutions are some of the institutions are completely off limits, but. We have to keep doing it anyway from the margins and hope it penetrates the, the center. It will eventually, trust me, because they're going to realize like several, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, oh my God, we picked the wrong people. We put our, we put our, uh, our chess pieces on the wrong squares. We had the wrong characters. These are the, these people that were vilified at this point were actually out, they actually were serving our interests without us knowing it. We thought they were our natural enemies, but they turned out to be our allies in the long run. And they'll see this eventually, but we can't expect the lights to go on at once. It's not going to happen like that. Right. It's, it's it, There's a bit of amusing irony to me that there is a level of exploitation happening of the masses but they yes. don't see it that way. It's no. Well, you know, there could be some psychops going on. You know, there could be some uh, psychological warf- warfare being undertaken. And this is the claim that was made in a video that has been recently pulled down. 
for hate speech by YouTube, but it was nothing to do with hate. There's nothing hateful. It's just what they did is these were insiders inside the intelligence uh, uh, industry, not, not inside the government. They were contract workers who know the gig and they know what was going on, what kind of psychological warfare is being waged through technology against the public and totally brainwashing them. And one guy was asked, um, he was asked, what do you think of these protests and riots? And he says, it's all, there's no way this is spontaneous. This is definitely a result of shadow, uh, shadow net uh, and their, their efforts to, to, to propagandize and, and basically steer and control people through messaging using me social media and other things. So, um, well, how did I get to that? I forget. Well, being, being led, being exploited by the people you think are helping you. Yes. Yes, that's right. They're being exploited and they're being duped. And they're, they're dupes. They don't realize it. I would say even uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, AOC are dupes. They're democratic socialists. They're dupes and, work, and effectively they're doing the, the dirty work for corporate socialism. There is, and I mentioned before, there's, there's an impressiveness to this. It, it looks kind of, oh, it's, yeah. it's, <laughs> reminds me of uh, the wand guy in Harry Potter 1 where he does great things, terrible things, but great things. This, this looks yeah. evil. Wanting to control other people yeah. seems evil. Yes, it is. It is evil. Um, it is evil from a uh, humanistic perspective even. And if you believe in anything else, it looks evil from that perspective too. But even from just a pure humanistic uh, standpoint, a humanist libertarian standpoint, let's say, it's, it's evil because it's tempting to overtake people and undermine their autonomy. Speaking of which, this is the exact theme of my new book, um, The Thought Criminal. Um, that's exactly what the book's about. That was smooth. <laughs> oh, thank you. Hey, dude, I gotta do. I gotta do this for That's something. Great. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm, listen. I'm straight up honest about this. Shit. I want to colonize the mental sphere. Like, so these socialists are like, oh, you know, white. Uh, you know, these. Uh, this one guy said he, he accused me of trying to uh, be a colonist. You know, and and so forth. And well, he was hoping his essay about that would go all over the place, right? So they just deny their own hegemonic impulses. I'm not. I'm telling you straight up. I hope my ideas go everywhere. There it is. Well, and, and they might, because you do two books a year. Uh, right. <laughs> Since you did volunteer, you are the at least eating libertarian. I want to shift focus mm -hmm. here a little bit uh, to a couple of kind of short answer or at least fun answer questions. Of the five flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami, yeah. which one do you enjoy the most? Sweet. What's your favorite food? Ice cream. What's your least favorite food? Any green vegetable. What gets you excited? Women. <laughs> what turns you off? Um, women with hair under their armpits. What sound do you love? Um, mm. Um, that's a good one. What sound do I love? Hmm. Hmm. I guess, uh, a chink in my cash register, so to speak, in my <laughs> virtual cash register. <laughs> what sound do you hate? Oh, 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 I hate the sound of notifications on my phone. I gotta tell you, I just can't stand the constant taunting. You know, it's like a, Endless thing. It's just drip, drip, drip. It's a Chinese water torture. Hmm. What's your favorite food indulgence? Same thing, ice cream. Okay. So we've covered a lot of ground here. And you did volunteer <laughs> that you have a fiction book. Yes. Is there, so this does sound like a setup, but is there a book or some books you want to recommend for people who can... This is a this is a huge bite, but if they want to get some more information and find their own rabbit holes on either the Frankfurt School or on uh, postmodernism or cultural studies, where's a good place to start? 
Well, I mean, I have to be honest. I'm, I'm putting this whole course together. It should be out pretty soon. I just have a, a, several more recordings to make, and then it'll be up to Tom Woods when he publishes it. You know, he, he's very much of a perfectionist, and I admire that, so I am too. But there's certain things I, I don't worry about as much as he might, like sound quality and things like that. But the Frankfurt School uh, class, will uh, Frankfurt School Postmodern Theory and Cultural Studies thing will be up soon. It's it's a primer. You know, I can't possibly plumb all the, all the rabbit holes, if you will, entirely, but I trace it as far out as I can without becoming onerous. That, and if you go to my website, michaelrechtenwald.com, you know, if you want to get a nice, uh, speaking of, um, you know, in culinary terms, if you want a nice buffet, uh, a, a smorgasbord of my work, uh, get Beyond Woke. That's a kind of smorgasbord of my work. If you want to know about my work in, uh, about tech, high tech or what I call big digital, uh, go to Google Archipelago. If you want to know my narrative, straight through go to springtime for snowflakes and that's it okay very good well i will put a even though it's not ready yet i'll put the affiliate link for time Woods liberty classroom on the show notes page and michaelrechtenwald.com do you want to volunteer a facebook page since we need more notifications or uh, an email address well, I think everything is everything is accessible through my okay. website, michaelrechtenwald.com. You can find my Facebook page, my Twitter page. Um, I don't use Instagram. I, you know, I just it's I don't know. I don't like it so much. Um, and uh, but I have one. So, but and I have Twitter. I have a lot of followers, but I think I'm shadow banned there, so I don't spend that. Much yeah, time I read, I read something. You thinking um, that that had happened? Then yeah, when you have almost twelve, you have twelve thousand four hundred followers and put out a tweet that says the same thing as you put out on Facebook and the tweet gets five responses and it gets 157 on Facebook, something's going on. It's the same exact thing and it's the same exact audience. So not exactly, but it's a fairly right. similar audience. Interesting. Well, I, I think I just don't have those problems. <laughs> so I don't know how that works. Yeah. it's Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it matters to me because I'm trying to do publicity. I mean, I'll be honest. I, I'm trying to do publicity because I, I, I'm trying to sell books, and I, I admit that. But it's be, you know, it's just my. I'm an entrepreneur now. That's all. I'm an entrepreneur now. I'm not an. I'm, I'm a free market intellectual. That's what I'm doing. I'm an intellectual entrepreneur. I like to say, and uh, yeah, my, my. I think Tom Woods is probably the, the forerunner in this, in this whole field of being an intellectual entrepreneur. So. I take every bit of advice he gives me. That's for sure, because you can't be... Well, I think you're probably right about that. Yeah. All right. Well, I do appreciate your time today. I, I, I think we have covered a good foundation for what this whole thing kind of is. And you, you did mention Derrida, and I know that uh, Jordan Peterson mentions him, <laughs> well, a lot. And, and that's, yeah. uh, that's probably another conversation. And I think... I know there are people who don't care for Jordan, but I I, I like ninety five percent of ways. Oh, he's uh, he's got some great. I mean, he's an excellent orator and an incredibly smart guy. I think he's uh, um, really an amazing character. I I you know I think he's wonderful. It's just that I don't want to be called the American Jordan Peterson or the other Jordan Peterson or recently the rock and roll really? Jordan Peterson. I was recently called. I just don't want to be a version of somebody else. <laughs> no, I, it's just funny because when I first heard him talking about uh, his some of his talks on, on on the myth, the big myths, in the connection, I said, "My yeah. God, this is Joseph Campbell." Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's admittedly derivative in many respects, uh, Campbell, and uh, of course, um, um, what's his name? Yeah, Young. Well, I was Carl a Young. Big fan of Campbell's uh, work. I, I love that guy. He was. He, and oh yeah, it's, it's amazing! It's amazing, such an engaging storyteller. I mean, that's really the gift. Is great yeah, writer, just, great writer, and great at explaining myth, and um, just incredibly erudite, but also very, very. The writing is it's totally approachable. You can uh, get it. He's not talking down to you. It's that exactly like most academic stuff, which is just meant to be like impenetrable gobbledygook so you can't really find out what they're saying and therefore can't really disagree with it because you don't know what the hell they meant, which would bring us back yeah. to Derrida, right? So, All right. 
Well, again, I appreciate your time this afternoon for you. And, My pleasure. And uh, and there we go. Okay. All right. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put links to Michael's books on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 101. I'll also add a few articles I think will be helpful to really get a mental handle on this idea. This was sort of a, a new rabbit hole for me, and I found at least these two articles very useful. And as mentioned, the link to Liberty Classroom will be there. Michael's course isn't done yet, but one feature for membership at any level is you get access to all the courses to come. The chief distinction is that the master level membership is a lifetime membership. The other two levels are one year only, but Michael's course should be out soon. Please remember to like this episode and the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Share it on social media. This is a big episode. I'm proud of this one. And leave a rating and review on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.